This is the Game Dev Field Guide bonus episode number one. Today's special guest, Zaccavelli. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Welcome to the very first bonus episode of the Game Dev Field Guide. This episode is sponsored by the patrons. And basically how that works, there's no special feed or um, patron-exclusive episodes. Everyone gets it for free. Um, It's just kind of a way of, I guess, making sure that the patrons' support goes to everyone in the community. And uh, yeah, I just didn't want to make any exclusive content, so I just decided uh, let's just give it out to everyone. If you are interested in becoming a patron, um, you get some other things like you can vote on an episode per month and the patrons choose one of the topics of the normal episodes um, per month and there's a special Discord role and really it's just a way to support, directly support the uh, show. So yeah, if that's something that interests you, I'll leave a link to the Patreon in the show notes. But with that out of the way, let's get to the first segment of the show. The first segment, we're going to play Buff Debuff. This is something we tried out a little bit ago, and uh, I got good feedback on the Discord, so this is going to become maybe a a reoccurring segment. And how it works is uh, Buff Debuff is basically, if I like something, if I think it's on a positive trend, I will say that it's buffed, and if I think it's on a negative trend um, or maybe something that's not headed in the right direction, we're going to call that debuffed. And these are kind of just my subjective opinions, and it's kind of a quick fire right off the top of my head kind of things. I don't write any notes for this, so it could go really bad. I just read the words and say what comes to my mind. So yeah, let's um, try it out. So the first topic is whiteboxing first and doing art later. And by whiteboxing, I think it's meant as basically having like an ugly looking game or just a bare bones looking game, but with all the features in it and then adding the art back in after. To me, this method, I guess, is buffed to me. This is how I make pretty much all of my games. I definitely start with just bare bones. I mean, in some cases, literally white boxes, especially for the UI, uh, but even the actual gameplay elements. And I think this really helps organize things for me, at least, because uh, I know what I got to do first. If I had just like art and gameplay and all that and try to do it all at once and kind of jump back and forth between art and gameplay, art and gameplay, I think I would just have a really tough time like tracking everything. I like to just kind of do similar things all at once. So I'll focus on game design, level design, kind of block it all out, and then I'll jump to art and then do a huge art pass and make everything look good. Then maybe I'll go back to game design, improve some things, and then go back to art and do a big pass and improve it again. Another thing that I like about doing uh, sort of white boxing and art sort of separately is that one doesn't depend on the other. If you if you were to do them both at the same time, uh, you might find yourself in a workplay or a workflow rather, or a gameplay where the art and game depend on each other. And maybe you don't like the art when it's finished, and then you have this weird dependency that you have to deal with. If you white box everything, um, then you can try out a few different art styles and 
maybe see which one you think you like the best. So yeah, generally I think the method of whiteboxing first and doing art later is buffed, and uh, that's how I make my games. The next topic is voxel art. I am a big fan of voxel art both as a game player and as a game maker. One, I just think voxel art looks really cool. I especially like, from a player standpoint, the like high definition voxel art. I think that looks really cool and has a really unique look. Um, but as a game dev, I also think voxel art is buffed. And I think that for myself personally and pretty much anyone, maybe especially people who are new to game dev, I think voxel art is a good jumping in point because it's sort of like building with Legos. Like it, I think it comes a little more intuitively than drawing. And so I think most game devs, especially those who maybe don't have super strong art skills, will be able to make something that looks good uh, using a voxel art style. It's also one of the easier art forms to work with in 3D because most of the time your voxel art's going to be, I don't know if geometric is the right term, but uh, it's just going to be a little bit easier to work with than maybe something that's like hand sculpted or has a more organic and less blocky form. So yeah, overall I think voxel art is definitely buffed. Next topic is microtransactions. This is going to be maybe <laughs> controversial, but I think microtransactions to me are buffed, but there's a caveat that you have to do them right. Microtransactions can be an like a super mega debuff if you do not do them right. And to me, the line of that is that you can't have your microtransactions affect the game from a balance standpoint. In other words, you want to avoid at all costs the pay-to-win model. I'm also not a huge fan of like the pay-for-convenience model like uh, you might see in mobile games like you have energy or something and you once you run out of energy you can't play the game anymore but you could pay money to get more energy to play the game i don't love that but i don't see it as harmful as a straight up just pay to win like if you were had a shooter game and you paid for a better gun than someone else that's just it's to me it's not good game design um and I don't think it really works on players now. It might have worked when microtransactions were brand new. And maybe I'm wrong about that, but I don't know. I just think most players now also don't love microtransactions, especially the pay-to-win ones. So after that kind of caveat explained, I did say it was buffed. And I think microtransactions are buffed when you apply them in the right way, which would be, in my opinion, like a cosmetic way. I think microtransactions from a game business standpoint um, can really extend the longevity of your game, or at least allow you to make a little bit more money, especially if your game has like a deep multiplayer element to it. If you sell microtransactions cosmetically, people just naturally want to like show off what they've bought. We're going to kind of talk about that topic, I think, on another word later here in a second. But yeah, I think people just like to show off like a cool skins and I don't see any problem with that from a game design standpoint. And I actually, for your game business, I think it actually can be really helpful. So yeah, overall, I think microtransactions are buffed but you have to be very careful if you're going to put them in your game. Let's jump over to that related topic that I was talking about. This one is NFTs. Now, NFTs are super hot right now. You've probably seen them all over the internet. 
And like any new hot technology, um, there are a lot of people trying to make money off of it. And I think right now, uh, to me, NFTs are actually debuffed, but in the long term for game developers, they could be buffed. The reason I think NFTs right now are debuffed are, well, really there's two reasons. The first reason is that it's kind of a cash grab right now. I mean, everybody has got, it seems like, an NFT project, and I'm not sure about the longevity of them. And to me, like, the real value in an NFT is its utility, and almost none of them are making use of the utility. They're kind of just making, like, collectible artworks. And I do understand the collectible artwork thing, because like I was saying with microtransactions, people like to show off what they bought. Even if you can get the image for free on the internet, just someone saying that I own it is kind of worth it as like a social currency. But I think long term, the technology of NFTs, once it's solved, you know, uh, this is I'm not, I'm not a uh, I'm not an expert on this. So maybe this is like a poor opinion. But once they've solved, you know, there's some environmental concerns with NFTs. There's some concerns about what happens if the exchange that the NFT's on isn't around anymore. Once they've solved all that, though, I think NFTs, the overall technology, will be great for artists of all kinds, and I think game dev will definitely fall under that umbrella. So in the short term, NFTs debuffed, but in the long term, I think NFTs are a buff for game developers. Next, we have open world design. I think open world design to me is debuffed, and it comes for two reasons. Um, one is like the practicality for an indie game dev. I mean, that's the world I'm in, after all. Uh, maybe if I worked in a AAA studio, I'd have a different opinion. But two, I don't think open world design is as interesting as maybe the more traditional, just like linear level design. And I know that sounds backwards to a lot of people. A lot of people think like open world design is the next, you know, it's above linear design in terms of progress, I guess you could say. Like, it seems like not that long ago when open world design games were becoming really popular, a lot of people thought like, why would you ever go back to a game with linear levels? But to me, when you build an open world game, you're having like, an ocean of content, but it's as deep as a puddle. There's no way that a studio, just because out of scope, especially for a AAA studio, but even an indie dev, it's really hard to make an open world and then populate everything with interesting stuff to do. I think Skyrim is the best example, um, and obviously Skyrim's an all-time classic game, but even Skyrim has its flaws, and one of them, I think, is that the open world, although there's lots of events, they're, you know, a lot of times very shallow if they're not the main quest or some of the main missions. And as an indie dev, I don't think open world design is a good idea because I don't think the average indie dev or small indie team is going to be able to pull off an open world that has the depth of Skyrim. And remember, Skyrim is not even as deep as I would like it to be. If you look at a game that has traditional level design, then you can really focus on each level and make sure that the experience is well thought out and deep and has all sorts of interesting stuff going on. And you can really focus your just overall game design in a linear level design, or linear level game, rather. So yeah, 
I think open world design is debuffed, and I actually prefer, at the moment, I prefer linear level design. Next, we have smart platformer AI. And by this, I think the intent was AI that doesn't just move back and forth like a Goomba in Mario. I'm going to say this is kind of a tough one because it really depends on the project. But I'm, for me, I'm going to say this is debuffed. And the reason is because when when you make a platformer, it's almost better to have a dumb AI. Because platforming, to me, is really about the player doing, like, pattern recognition and, like, knowing when to jump and kind of feeling it out and sensing momentum and stuff like that. Um, If you have a so-called smart AI that maybe doesn't just move on a set pattern, then that rhythm is a little bit harder to get into and that kind of reading the pattern is a little bit harder for the player. And so, in my opinion, in a platformer where it's kind of about readability kind of what you want you we want a player to get in that like flow state and just really be hitting their jumps and like perfectly executing the controls really um i think it's actually better to make it a little bit easier on them by having enemies with consistent movements and to do that you just kind of can dumbly put them on a pattern like just a back and forth pattern or maybe a on harder enemies you can do like a squiggly pattern or something like that it, I think it does get a little bit more interesting on if you have some kind of boss encounter, then you might want to consider some sort of smart AI. Although even then, if you mixed up a few so-called dumb mechanics into something a little bit more interesting, I still think maybe even in a boss encounter, you probably want easily recognizable patterns. Uh, and that just comes from the genre of platforming. And I guess that's just my opinion on what a platformer should be, but... It's buffy buff, so <laughs> it is all just my opinions. So yeah, overall, I think smart enemy AI in a platformer is actually debuffed. And the last um, topic we have today for buff debuff is diegetic UI. As I understand it, it's UI that's like presented in the game world. So instead of having just an overlay of a compass uh, on your screen, your player like actually has to look down at a compass. Or if instead of having like a timer in the top right corner of the screen, like your player has a watch and you look at the watch, uh, those are kind of the same example. There's other ways like your player could talk. And actually one of the coolest examples I saw was from an old Jurassic Park game called, I think it's Jurassic Park Trespasser. But the character would say like, I think I have three bullets left. And then she also had a heart tattoo and you had to like look down at her tattoo to see how much life you had left. I thought that was really cool. So overall, I'm going to say diegetic UI is buffed um, just from a coolness and like world building and immersion standpoint. I think it would be really hard to like you'd really have to know a lot about UI and how to present information if you want to achieve something like this or maybe because it's so intuitive to the player like because they're literally doing something they normally would do maybe you have to be less smart about how you design it (laughs) this is just me I'm just I'm literally just thinking up these things right now I really should add a disclaimer at the beginning that I'm thinking these points out as I say I'm When I usually write an episode, you know, I have time to like write it down and make sure it all sounds good and make sure I'm giving good advice. This is all just right off the hip. So (laughs) 
Diegetic UI, if you're a UI designer, maybe it actually helps if you don't know what you're doing to do diegetic UI because it's more intuitive to a person. Like instead of figuring out how to present time on the screen, you could just say, just look at your watch. <laughs> I think that kind of makes sense if you don't think about it. So yeah, uh, diegetic UI is buffed. So yeah, that was the first segment of the show. I'll usually, on these bonus episodes, I think I'll mix up the first segment every now and then. Maybe we'll play Buff the Buff. Maybe we'll play um, that segment I was talking about where we talk about a specific form of juice. Maybe we'll play uh, Zaccavelli, You Dummy. That's a classic. Just kind of a general variety uh, first segment. If you've got a good idea for the first segment, uh, please go on to the Discord or message me on Twitter at underscore Zaccavelli underscore. You will find all those links, all the relevant links to our community and how to get a hold of me and all sorts of good stuff in the show notes. With that, we're going to jump into the second segment of the show. And the second segment of the show is really going to be the meat and kind of key part of the show. I guess I'm sort of giving spoilers away, but the second segment is going to be a key thought from a special guest. And I just did this first month just to test it out, Um, but I have started lining up guest speakers. And so you know that I don't like to do interviews normally. And that's because all the other game dev podcasts, some of them I really like, Um, But they're all interview type shows and what I found is that a lot of information is lost in the interview just because, you know, an interview is just more like a conversation. You have like, you know, there's friendly conversation moments where you just talk about whatever. And that's nice to listen to and kind of chill out and relax to. But what I want for the Game Dev Field Guide is to be a lot more like focused on actual like actionable advice and tips and stuff like that. And so for the second segment, I'm just going to call it the key thought or something like that. And it's going to be from a different special guest every week. And what I've been telling them is try to present the best thing you know about game dev, like the best tip, best advice you could give in 15 minutes. And it's not going to be me asking them any questions. I'm just going to let them talk and write out for 15 minutes or however long they want to go for or however short, I guess. So, yeah, think of them more like keynote speeches, I guess. And, uh, yeah, it would be weird to introduce myself. Usually I will introduce the guests, but uh, I'm not going to introduce myself. That feels kind of weird. Let's just uh, get into my key thought. So I want to start with a question, and that question is, why do people play video games? It's an important question if you're going to make one, because like when designing really anything, um, you should consider why the end user might use it or choose to use the product. So the question of why do people play video games is actually a very important one to consider. And I think most people would probably say, well, people play video games to have fun or to relax. And I think there are a lot of games that are fun and relaxing, but if you look, I don't think that describes all or even the majority of video games. There are many popular games that aren't relaxing Um, And they're actually like very intense and very adrenaline pumping. And I would even say that some games aren't even really fun. They're more like serious or punishing or scary or sad. And yet millions of people play 
games that aren't fun or relaxing every day. So to say that it's just for fun or to relax I think is wrong. I think people play video games because they are compelled to do so via their emotions and feelings. They are compelled to have fun. They are compelled to be sad. This is the same reason why maybe comedies and drama are the most popular movie categories. I think at its core, people just want to experience emotions and feelings, and they want these emotions and feelings to come from other people, the artists that create the medium by which the audience experiences it. Due to the interaction element, I think video games are the perfect medium for this emotional link between the player and the creator. And if you've listened to any episodes, you know that this sounds like the golden rule of game dev, and that is my sort of main goal when making a video game. Um, and I realized that I never really did like a deep dive into it. So for my keynote, I'm going to explain my golden rule of game dev. Like I said, if you've been listening for a while, you already know what the golden rule is, but let me just refresh you because uh, I want to absolutely drill it into your head. When designing a video game in all aspects, whether that be art, gameplay, music, you know, etc., you should be trying to capture an emotion and or feeling in whatever it is that you're designing. The end product should be something that evokes that feeling or emotion to the player via the game. To put it a little bit more practically, you're taking an emotion or feeling out of your mind, you're going to package it up into something in your game or the game as a whole, and your player receives that package by playing the game and they open it and experience the same emotion. You're basically just communicating your feelings, but instead of using your words, you're going to use a game you made. Now, this doesn't always have to be a super saturated feeling. Don't take this as like you need to bring your player to tears to make a good game. A good example of this is Balloon's Tower Defense. It's undeniably a great game. And I don't think the dev was like, I'm gonna compel the people to tears of joy by making a game where monkeys throw darts at balloons. But I do think you can see a common human feeling and bond in the idea of the satisfaction of popping a bunch of balloons. Popping balloons isn't an emotion per se, but I think it's definitely a feeling. Like, in real life, if you put a person in a room full of balloons with a sharp object and said, pop them all, like, what human is not at least compelled by that? You show me the person who, when you hand them a spool full of bubble wrap, they don't enjoy or get satisfaction out of popping it. And if you find that person, uh, check them for, like, wires or see if they're an alien or something. Because <laughs> I think that's something that everyone can kind of share a common experience of. Like, everyone likes the satisfaction of doing that. And maybe it's not everyone, but I hope you can see the point about, like, building a common bond in capturing a feeling. Popping balloons is satisfying to a lot of people and when you mix that satisfying sort of common feeling uh, with just a tower defense genre, I think you get Balloon's Tower Defense. 
So I guess the overall point is that it doesn't have to be the emotional extremes that you're trying to evoke. It certainly can be, uh, but when I say evoke a feeling, I mean any feeling you think that is worth communicating. And that can be something as small as the satisfaction of popping balloons. So how, like, practically might you go about this? Well, when you first get your game idea or at least when I first get a game idea, let's just say we're making a game for a game jam, and I get the idea and you get the theme, I usually, after I've decided on what kind of genre I'm going to go for, I usually write down like keywords or key feelings or emotions that I'm going to try and capture in the game. And remember, these are the emotions or feelings that we're trying to communicate to the audience who will be playing the game. Lately, when I've been making games, I started focusing more on feelings or sort of like relatable moments uh, rather than straight up emotions. For instance, if you're making a shooting game and you want to make a satisfying machine gun, you might start with the emotions or feelings um, that you have personally with the machine gun. So you might say you want to capture like the feeling of rage or for me, like I said, it's a little bit easier for me to materialize feelings. And so when I think of a machine gun, I might say like, well, it's like holding a jackhammer. And you can see how when you change and focus the feeling, let's just say uh, we go along with the jackhammer idea. Instead of just being a typical machine gun that everyone's played in every games, this machine gun is really going to communicate that force and sort of like jitteriness just like a jackhammer. And you can already see how shooting this machine gun is so much, well, hopefully is so much more satisfying in this game because it's like holding a jackhammer and having that like forceful impactfulness. And when we design with that in mind, kind of communicating that feeling. And I think that will really set this machine gun uh, apart from all the other machine guns in all the other video games because this one feels like a jackhammer. And if you focus on all the different kind of subtle things and polish and just the root and core game design, if you make it all to communicate that this machine gun feels like a jackhammer, then when your player goes to play it, they're going to think to themselves like, whoa, this machine gun feels like a jackhammer. Or maybe they don't even know what a jackhammer is, but they're going to think that the machine gun feels really punchy and really satisfying to use. And I think that's really going to set your game apart from the others when you focus on these feelings and emotions. So I guess the overall point is, is that when you're designing your game, no matter what part of it is that you are designing, make sure you are focusing on a feeling or emotion. And remember that the goal is to communicate this feeling or emotion to the player. You're trying to evoke that out of the player. And the reason you're trying to do that is because that's what compels them to play a video game. It's the reason why people play games that maybe aren't fun, but they are compelling. And that compulsion comes from their, you know, human desire, I guess, to experience emotions. And uh, I guess, yeah, I don't, I don't want to get too heady with it, because <laughs> it sounds like what the philosophy of the human desire is, and I'm definitely not educated enough to talk about that. But I think you could really improve yourself as a game dev and improve the 
compelling nature of your games if you focused on this. So I just want to sum it up quickly and kind of put a neat bow on it. The golden rule of game dev, in my opinion, is to capture an emotion or feeling and evoke that same emotion or feeling from the player via the medium of the game you made. You can do this in all of the design aspects of a video game. Try to boil whatever it is that you're trying to capture. Try to boil it down to a very specific thing. And make sure that whatever you're making, like, absolutely oozes this feeling or emotion. The more you focus on this in your design, the more that I think that's going to be captured in your game. And I think it's going to be a more powerful emotion or feeling that is felt by the player when they play your game. And hopefully the end goal is that the experience, whatever experience it is that you gave them, really sticks with them. And if you make something that really sticks with someone, something that's real memorable or compelled them to feel emotions that maybe they weren't expecting or maybe they were expecting, maybe they just wanted to have fun and your game was fun to them and you just made their Tuesday night, I think that's a little thing that really influences someone's life. Like sometimes people just need that Tuesday night where they have fun. They sit down and enjoy a game. Um, maybe it's a just a really simple game where they can just turn their brain off and have some fun and relax for a little bit. Maybe it's a game that's a lot more serious in nature and maybe even sad. Maybe it's a game that gives someone the experience of holding a jackhammer which could be an experience they wouldn't get otherwise and can be extremely satisfying. I think the point I'm trying to get at is, is that we started this sort of keynote with why do people play games, but I want to end it with why should you make games? Remember, the golden rule has this sort of relationship between the people who make games and the people who play them in the link of communicating emotions. And so when I think, why do I make games, I think about it in the same way that I think about why do I comfort someone when they say my dog died? Why do I tell a joke in a group of people? Why do I yell at someone when I'm frustrated with them? In the end, I think everything is really can be summed up about communicating feelings. And to me, being a game dev all you're doing is communicating these feelings in a different way. So I guess to sum it all up, I think people play video games to experience feelings and emotions that maybe they need in that moment. They're compelled to do so because, I don't know, I think it's just human desire to want those experiences. And as a game dev, I like to make games because I want to provide those experiences that help people feel the emotions and feelings that they're looking for. So yeah, that's my key thought on um, kind of the golden rule of game dev and emotions and what compels people to play a game. I think in this section, we'll usually let the guest, or maybe I'll just talk about the guest, um, I'll, I'll let them plug some content. And uh, yeah, if you really liked their key thought, yeah, this would give you an opportunity to go check out their content and see what they're making. And there are a lot of good content creators and game devs out there. And so I'm really looking forward to this because I think we're really going to expand our knowledge and build like a pretty cool knowledge base. I'm thinking like 
I don't know, 20 bonus episodes down the line, I mean, you could have 20 key thoughts from all sorts of people all over the game dev world. So yeah, I hope this is going to be cool. I think it will be cool. Please let me know what you thought of the bonus episode format and structure and just kind of what we're going on uh, with here in the future. Like I said, this is the first one, and so everything's still in the works. And ultimately, this is supported by the patrons. So it's really for you guys, and so I want to make sure that it's you know, worth it to everyone. I think this will be, I think this is something that's going to bring the most value um, possible for like a bonus episode. But uh, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. So if you think I'm wrong and you have a better idea for a bonus episode format or maybe just something you want to add or just have thoughts about it, um, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. Uh, that's at underscore Zaccavelli underscore. Come jump on the Discord and talk to us about it. The open invite link will be in the show notes. And uh, yeah, I'm really, really looking forward to these bonus episodes. I think they're going to be pretty cool going into the future. And I uh, hope you think that too. With that, I'm going to end the show. I have been your host, Zaccavelli. And I'll catch you on the next installment of the Game Dev Field Guide.